0: There we go. Uh, It's good to be with you here at um, ICP. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Simon, Simon Marshall. And yes, uh, I am Trevor's brother. Um, So uh, that explains all sorts of things probably about both of us. Um, But um, Dorit, my wife, and I were here at ICP a number of years ago. And um, I recognize a few people around. So, um, ex um, Czech teacher, so I thought I'd better say something in in Czech there. Um, It is good to be back with you. Um, No one warned me that uh, there were going to be photographs taken today, so I'm not quite ready for my close up, but never mind. we, um, we left ICP, I think it was just about, just over 10 years ago, and at the moment, uh, I serve with a European mission organisation, European Christian Mission International, as their director, and um, we come over just to, to visit family and to meet people in uh, uh, Czech Republic as well. So, that's a little bit about me. This morning, I I want to spend a little bit of time in a psalm, which is one that you will probably know very well. And being here on two Sundays in a row, yes, sorry about that, uh, we're going to be looking at the topic of glory uh, from two slightly different perspectives, I think. And this morning, Psalm 8 is where I would like to start. As I say, a psalm that we probably know well. It's a psalm that's quoted a number of times in the New Testament, and it's a psalm which is used by Jesus himself. It's a psalm of praise, a psalm that concentrates on the reality of creation. So let's just read that together, Psalm 8. So please do turn to it if you have your Bibles with you, but it will be up on the screen. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the Lord will bless the reading of his word to us this morning. A few weeks ago, you may have followed the launching of the latest telescope, the James Webb Telescope. Um, I was fascinated by these sorts of things when I was about seven. um, Men landed on the moon for the first time, gives you an idea of how old I am. And um, I wanted to be uh, an astronaut at that time. Uh, Found out a little bit later, the problem with that is you had to do maths. Uh, So I gave that up. But the James Webb Telescope has been launched and it will soon be sending to us even more uh, amazing and magnificent, impressive pictures of the universe than the ones that the Hubble Telescope has been doing for the last number of years. Now, I don't know what you think when you see pictures that come back uh, like this one here. But my mind... Phil, if we could have the next one. Thank you. If, when I see that, my mind goes a little bit like this. It says, that is amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's beyond words in many ways, isn't it? Those pictures show us things that are out there in the universe, which we probably didn't have any idea about. But then, I think... If the universe is as awe-inspiring as this, what must the God who put it all there really be like? If that is the wonder of the universe, how amazing must the God who put it there be? And you know, I think that's what we're meant to think. That's part of what our reaction ought to be when we see the wonders of the universe. And that's what this psalm does. I think we're supposed to go through a particular uh, thought pattern as we uh, think of this. And the psalm takes us through it. It starts off by saying that God is a great God. How do I know this? Well, I know this because I can see it through the wonder of the universe. But then a question comes in and says, well, if God is that great and this universe is this amazing, then Why did he create humanity, you and me, with the role that he has given us? Why has he given us the honour of looking after his creation? And then the psalmist says, God is indeed a great God. That's the basic thoughts that are going through the task, through the psalm. But our task this morning is to just uh, think a little bit more closely about them, zoom in on them a little bit like with a telescope, if you want, so that we can see some of the details that are there which we couldn't see before, so they become a little bit clearer. Verse 1 is a good place to start. And it is, of course, repeated in verse 9. Verse 1 and 9 are the same. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. One of the great English poets, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, described a poem like a snake swallowing its tail. In other words... When you get to the end of the poem, you seem to have come back to the beginning, but you've come back in such a way that the journey you have been on has changed your thoughts. It's added depth. It's given you more, um, more uh, meaning and content to the statement at the beginning and at the end. And that, I think, is exactly what happens in Psalm 8, which is, therefore, as far as Coleridge is concerned, a perfect poem. We start off recognizing how majestic the name of Yahweh, our God, actually is in all the earth. And yes, the psalm addresses God by his personal name. It's hidden in many uh, language translations. In the English ones, it tends to be hidden behind the capitalized Lord, the personal name of God, the name of the faithful God, the name of the covenant God, the name of the God who can always be trusted. This God, Yahweh, is our God. He is also our Lord. He is our master. He is our king. So, we start off with a statement of praise, but it's a statement which also reminds us something of the nature of God because His name reveals something of His nature, and it is revelation which I think lies behind it. God's name is often associated with revelation, a revealing of something of who He actually is, and when God describes his name or explains his name in detail to Moses back at the beginning of Exodus. It is explained in the context of God revealing who he is. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And here, it's the same. We have something revealed about who God is through the use of his name. And in the psalm here, it becomes synonymous. It runs in parallel with the word glory. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. That's how the psalms work. God's majestic name is synonymous with his glory. And it is seen, where is it seen? It's seen in the earth and in the heavens. And so right at the very beginning here, the idea of creation is brought to the fore, right to the center and front stage of what we're thinking about. And I suggest that actually the use of uh, heavens and earth here is really meant to make us think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It may be the opposite way round here, but I think we're meant to see the echo. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God has placed his majesty, he's placed his glory in the whole of his creation, not just in parts of it, but in the whole of his creation, the heavens and the earth. And so the praise of human beings, the praise of mortal beings, people like you and me, comes as a result of seeing. Of seeing even in a a small way something of the majesty and the glory of God as we look around us. But, But we all know that not everyone can see the same when they look at the heavens. Not everyone sees the same wonder when they view the same pictures from the Hubble or other telescopes. Not everybody responds with praise. Not everybody responds with recognising the glory of God and then worships him. Why? But I think verse two may actually give us a clue to this. Reading it through, I wonder whether verse two just struck you as being a little bit strange. You start off with this wonderful statement about how majestic a glorious God is. And then we have a statement about through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. We'll praise God, and then we'll talk about children, and we'll talk about enemies. But I think there's a reason for that here. And actually, it was touched upon as we were rehearsing for, our, um, for the, the, the songs this morning to just actually show something of the joy of being children of just enjoying being in the presence of God. Kids are great, aren't they? They can be joyful without it necessarily having something where somebody else is being put down or where they're uh, cheering over somebody else. They can just be joyful in the very moment. And I I remember when... um, Our son was was very small and he and I were kicking a ball around in the garden. I think Trevor may even have been there. But he scored, uh, our son Robert scored a goal. And the look on his face was just pure joy. Not, I've got one more goal than them or anything like that. Just pure joy through having done that. We lose that as we grow older, don't we? We lose the ability to just revel in something, in joy, as children. We become cynical. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, he talks about God the creator, and he says there is something childlike about a God who continues to create daisies exactly the same every time. Yes, there's huge diversity out there and wonder in so many different ways, but God seems to take pleasure in the fact that he makes a daisy, and then he makes another daisy, and then he makes another daisy, and even to other daisies, they look the same. That joy that comes out of creating, and that joy that is childlike, and so I think, as we recognize Jesus' words on the same sort of topic here, that we need to become like children, we see that here as well. That if we want to appreciate the wonder and the glory and the majesty of God, we actually have to come to that revelation in creation with a childlike like joy so taken up by it so taken up by the wonder that we simply burst into praise at the wonder of it all and then the psalmist seems to suggest that that very bursting into praise out of a childlike recognition of the wonder of God becomes a defense against our enemies it's a stronghold against our enemies. Note, it's not a weapon. It's not something that you go out and hit people around the head with. It's something which defends us. It's something where we can remain safe, protected from our enemies. I think that if we could recapture or perhaps capture for the very first time, I don't know, the wonder of who God is through the revelation of himself in the glory of creation. Then, you know, some of the criticisms and the attacks, the things that people say to us and about us as Christians, those things would, for us, be silenced. They would become silent, meaningless, empty. Why? Because we have a great God who sets his glory in the heavens. His majesty is seen throughout the earth. And so those voices disappear into silence. Because our praise becomes a stronghold. Before the glory of God, the glory that's revealed in the heavens, there really can be only one response. Childlike joy, worship, And praise but then let's turn on to the next few verses the next eight verses and these are probably the ones that we're most familiar with they're taken up by both Paul and the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament and we will return to to that briefly in a little while but what do these verses tell us here well first Once again, we're taken back to the first chapter of Genesis. The opening verse of Genesis is echoed in the opening verse of this psalm. And here, the verses later in Genesis about the creation of humanity and the role that God gives to human beings at the time of creation is referred to. We're taken back to that. David reiterates a basic truth. A basic truth about humanity, about you and me, about human beings, about mortals. And that is that we have been given by God a role in his creation. Been given by God a role in his creation. What is that role? Well, that role ultimately belongs to God, but it is a role which he has now placed in our hands. It's the role of ruling over his creation. You made them, humanity, rulers over the works of your hands. God's work, his creation, now becomes your responsibility. Now becomes my responsibility. It now becomes our responsibility. We are the vice-regents of God, given the stewardship of his creation. In chapter 1 of Genesis, that creation of humanity, the man and the woman there, is seen, if you like, as a climax to creation. This is what everything was leading up to. This is where we were coming to. Here in Psalm 8, things are changed a little bit. The very fact that God has given this role to humanity becomes in itself a source of wonder and a source of praise. There's also a sense of almost incomprehension about this. What's mankind that you're mindful of them. Creation's amazing, and yet you think about us. Why? Your creation, Lord, is so amazing. How come you've put us in charge of it? We are lower than the angels. But actually, you've given us a position of glory and honor the role of your vice regents and david as the writer of this psalm seems almost to be saying this is another of those things that i can't really get my head around and yet i believe it and it's a source of praise that's our role stewards of god's creation and so here we have part of that mandate that is given to humanity to care for god's amazing creation and to care for it in the way that god himself would care for it as christians i suggest that we need no other reason we need no other argument No different evidence, or whatever it may be, for being guardians of the natural world. Why? Because that is what God created us to do. It's a wonderful thing that we've been given, to look after the earth as he would. Why? Because in them, in them, we see his majesty and his glory. And we see something of who God is, Is revealed in the world around. And so, having gone through that little uh, journey into what an amazing thing God has done for us as human beings in this, which is difficult to understand, David, of course, can do no other thing. He returns to praise. Oh, Lord, ah, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so, we're back to the beginning. But we're back to the beginning in a way where we have added content and meaning and understanding and wonder and awe and joy and worship and praise to those words which perhaps were not there immediately at the start. And so this snake swallows its tail and brings it back to the beginning, brings us back to the beginning but brings us back with so much more in our hearts and in our minds. But of course, our understanding of the psalm does not stop there. Our understanding has another layer to it than perhaps David was able to understand when he wrote this. And it's seen there in the familiar verses 4 and 5. In the translation that I read for there, uh, rightly translated, referring to humanity as a whole, because that's the context in this psalm. But in modern English, uh, I think especially in British English, we tend to use the plural they as a singular reference to humanity or to a person. And in Hebrew, this is singular. Singular. So if we read these using he to refer to humanity, we end up with something that will help us to understand the use of these verses in the New Testament. What is humanity that you're mindful of him? A mortal, a son of Adam, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. And it's that singular form that the New Testament takes and applies to Jesus. To Jesus, who is the ultimate son of Adam, the ultimate mortal, the ultimate human being, or as he describes himself, I think, um, in this way more often than in any other, Son of man. Human being. It's the phrase that's used by God so often when he's speaking to Ezekiel. Because he's reminding Ezekiel in his prophecy that Ezekiel is a mortal, a man, a human being. And God is God. He is creator. Ezekiel is created. God is God. Immortal. Almighty. When Jesus uses it, of course, it reminds us that he is the second Adam, the one who fulfills in every way what humanity really should have been. And so this psalm can now be seen as something which speaks not just of humanity's historical and current role as guardians of God's creation, but it points forward It becomes prophetic because it points forward to the resurrection and to the exaltation of Jesus, to the one who is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high, to the one at whose name every knee shall bow. And so for us, as Christians, living this side of the empty tomb this side of the risen Christ this final verse then has even more meaning than it did for David when he wrote it because now we see the majesty of God's name not just in creation itself but we see his majesty in the resurrection of Christ his majesty in the fact that Jesus is Lord and so when the pictures start coming back in the summer from the James Webb telescope don't just sit there and think wow that's good isn't it see the glory of God that will be revealed to us there and don't just stop there worship the one who put Those things there. The one who is our Lord enthroned above the heavens.